as we return to the 21st chapter of Luke's gospel, you might recall that Jesus has been teaching his disciples about his second coming. And remember that he revealed five particular signs that would indicate the end of this age and the return of the Son of Man. Uh, number one, false prophets. Number two, wars and political upheaval. Number three, environmental signs. Number four, heavenly signs. And number five, the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. He said, these things you can anticipate. Look for these things. All right, let's see what he said next. Let's stand and read Luke 21, verses 29 through 38. The words are on the screen. We'd like to read out loud here, so if you would, join us. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all is taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Thank you. Please be seated. As we touched on a few weeks ago, Jesus, um, you know, as he concludes his teaching about the signs that we can anticipate at the end of this age, he then kind of speaks a parable. And he says, just as the budding leaves reveal the onset of summer, so also these signs that I've spoken of will indicate that the kingdom of God is near. Then Jesus says something that has caused a great deal of confusion throughout the ages, and uh, that's found in verse 32. Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Well, what does that mean? I mean, did, did Jesus just say that all the signs of the end would happen and that the Son of Man would return within the lifetime of those people who were standing there? What does Jesus mean when he says, this generation? Atheists love to quote this passage as evidence that the Bible cannot be trusted and that Jesus was wrong. Liberal theologians tend to believe that Luke just inserted this statement into his gospel because, of course, Luke thought maybe that Jesus was going to return in his lifetime. And, of course, then Luke would be wrong. I think both of those approaches are off base. Uh, this verse actually makes perfect sense if we simply reread the text with an open mind and an understanding of what has come before. Jesus has just described the last days and the signs that would accompany the end of the age. And I mean, he said things like, you know, there will be wars and rumors of wars and false prophets, but the end will not come immediately. I mean, he's clearly pointing some distance down the road in the, in the future. But then he says to you, truly, I, he says, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation, the one I just referred to, the one that sees these things taking place, will not pass away 
until all has taken place. Okay, in other words, whatever generation is the particular generation that sees all of these signs, that'll be the last generation. Because once those signs are in place, the end will come quickly. It will happen within their lifetime. It won't be like these signs take place and then 500 years later, the end will come. This generation that sees all these things, that'll, that'll be it. All things will come to pass within the lifetime of that generation when all of these five signs are in place. You know, he says you, but he says it in a general sense. You know, when you see these things, right? We, we use that all the time. We say, well, you never know what to expect. Are we saying you never know, or are we just saying y'all never know, right? So it, it's a general sense of if you just happen to be alive during the time when you see these things, you'll know that that's the end, okay? And I hope that's helpful. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, that the gospel would be preached to all the nations, and then he would return. Clearly, Jesus knew that the gospel would not be preached to all the nations in the lifetime of those disciples that are standing in his presence. So he would not have predicted the end of the age to occur, you know, at the end of the first century. Now listen to another prediction that Jesus makes in verse 33. Listen to this. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay. Think about what was happening when Jesus said these words. What what was going on? Okay, well, he's just a few days from being publicly executed on a criminal's cross. I mean, he would die a few days later after saying these words. He would die as a poor, homeless Jew in an insignificant country occupied and eclipsed by the Roman Empire. Those who heard him speak these words consisted of fishermen, farmers, political outcasts, and a betrayer. Upon his arrest... Those who loved him the most abandoned him. His closest friend denied even knowing him. A few days after his execution, those who were entrusted with his words were cowering in a room, fearful of their own arrest and persecution. For all intents and purposes, we should know nothing about the words of Jesus called the Christ, this poor carpenter-turned-itinerant preacher from Nazareth. This gospel of Luke that contains his words was in circulation around A.D. 70 within the lifetime of the witnesses who saw all of this happen. And you must ask yourself, why would anybody write anything down about this poor itinerant Jewish man who died a criminal's death? Let alone, why would anybody read it? Why read the words of an obscure man from an obscure people? Why would Jesus, a few days before his death, have any reason to believe that his words would outlast heaven and earth? Now I want you to think about that. And then I want you to reflect upon whose words are spoken of and remembered more than all the people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. Anyone want to challenge me on that? How many languages have the words of Jesus been translated into? Have any idea? 2,817 different languages. There are 2,167 translation projects 
underway right now. There are only 1,919 languages left on earth that do not have the words of Jesus available to them in writing, mostly because most of those languages don't have an alphabet. And so many of those groups have an audio version of Jesus' words in their language. Now, how many languages have the Quran or parts of the Quran in translation? 112. How many languages have Plato's Republic? Less than 10. No other king or general or poet or philosopher or leader or celebrity is quoted as often and as in as many languages as Jesus Christ who wrote or those who wrote about Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Jesus was absolutely correct. His words will outlive heaven and earth. And the only reasonable explanation is this, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who rose again from the dead on the third day. There is no other reasonable explanation why the words of one man trump every other person who has ever lived, even 2,000 years after his public execution. Now, Let's look at what Jesus says next, his words, beginning with verse 34. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the earth, but you stay awake at all times praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Boy, he said a mouthful there, didn't he? He says, watch yourselves. How many of you say that word? You say those words, you say that to your kids. Watch yourselves. If I say that to one of my sons, here's what I'm saying. Pay attention, boy. Pay attention to what you're doing because failure to pay attention could lead to your harm and or the harm of others. I mean, if we're walking through the woods and I see a rattlesnake on the path, I'm saying, watch yourself. Don't go, don't go aimlessly walking through this path right here as though that snake's not there because it's there. And if you're not paying attention, if you don't watch yourself, you're going to get bit. And I think that's very much along the line of what Jesus is saying. In other words, pay attention to what's going on in your heart. Pay attention to the way you spend your time. Stay alert and conscious of your surroundings. Don't aimlessly walk through life. As though Jesus is not coming back. He most certainly is, and we need to be ready. Paul writes in Ephesians 5.15, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Now, the opposite of watch yourself is relax. Take it easy. Kick your feet up and have a cold one. Take a load off. Our culture loves the word relax. In fact, Americans lead the world in creative ways to relax. But Jesus says, this is no time to relax. This is no time to waste away your life with drunkenness and triviality. This is not the time to be so wrapped up in your pursuit of worldly concerns that you give no thought to the return of the king. Jesus says that the day of the Lord will come upon everybody who dwells on the face of the earth. And it will come quickly. Like a thief in the night, it will come upon us suddenly like a trap. Jesus gives very specific directions to his disciples. That's us, the church. Verse 36, listen, he says, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Stay awake. Pray. 
endure, stand. In other words, remain vigilant and ready. Paul writes to young Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, listen, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Listen, what is he saying? He's saying, in light of the fact that he's coming back, in light of who he is and what he's done and what he said, listen, here's, here's the mandate. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. These are words that apply to every Christian, not just the preacher. This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples Be ready, in and out of season. Stay awake, stay on task. Finish the race. Endure, be ready to stand. And then Jesus calls his disciples to pray, and to pray specifically for strength. Why? Because hard times are coming, and we will need strength supplied from God himself to endure. I don't know if you've been keeping up with the news recently, but on Thursday, May 14th of this year, a Sudanese judge sentenced Miriam Ibrahim to death. What is her crime? She is a Christian. She also happens to be pregnant with her second child. And so they're going to allow her to give birth to her child, and then they're going to flog her 100 times, and then they're going to hang her because she's a follower of Jesus Christ. And she won't recant. The judge gave her three days. She said, I was never a Muslim. I'm a Christian. And I will not recant. This woman embodies everything that Jesus just said. Her strength clearly comes from above. She's willing to endure. She is sober-minded And she will stand before the king of kings. She will stand in the very presence of God because she endured to the end. You see, Jesus knew. He knew that those associated with his name would face all kinds of persecution and temptation. We've talked a lot about that because he talked a lot about that. He knew that that we would be tempted to recant. We'd be tempted to walk away from our faith, tempted to accumulate leaders and teachers and books that, you know, suit our passions. We would be tempted to give up, tempted to despair. Jesus says, pray. Pray for strength so that you might escape some of these things that are coming if but if you can't escape them to endure them so that you might stand before the Son of Man. This concept of endurance to the end to stand is a very common theme. Paul unpacks this in Ephesians 6. He says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then he says, stand. (laughs) I mean, This is not the day to relax. In the short time that remains in our lives, what we do matters, make most of the time. 
These words from Christ and the Apostle Paul, they may seem daunting and challenging. But remember, the return of Christ is not a threat. It's a promise. And it is a promise that we cling to as believers. And sometimes we, we don't see this. I, I don't think we see it appropriately. And so I'm going to tell you a story here at the end of my message that I think will help you to kind of picture this in a different way, a way that might be constructive and helpful in your minds. I, I read this story in a book by uh, David Jeremiah. The name of the book is What in the World is Going On? And uh, it's a great story that illustrates how we might think about the second coming of Christ. Does anybody recognize the name Ernest Shackleton? Yeah, okay, some of you are much smarter than I am. I had no idea who he is. But I read this story, and it's an amazing story. Let me tell you the story the way that, that Dr. Jeremiah tells it. On Saturday, August 8, 1914, long time ago, one week after Germany declared war on Russia, to give you some historical perspective, 29 men set sail in a three-masted wooden ship from Plymouth, England, to Antarctica, on a quest to become the first adventurers to cross the Antarctic continent on foot. Does that even sound remotely appealing to anybody here? <laughs> so Sir Ernest Shackleton, here's how he recruited men for this trip, through an advertisement. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. And 28 fools signed up for that, right? <laughs> Not only was Shackleton an honest man because these men experienced everything that the handbill promised, but he was also an able leader and a certified hero. His men came to refer to him as the boss, although he never thought of himself that way. He worked as hard as any crew member and built solid team unity aboard the ship, aptly named Endurance. Five months into the trip, January 1915, the ship became entrapped in an ice pack and it ultimately sank. The men were able to get off the ship, but it left them stranded on an ice floe, a flat, free-floating slice of sea ice. Shackleton kept the men busy by day and entertained them at night. They played ice soccer, had nightly song fest, and held regular dog sled, uh, sled dog competitions. It was in the ice floe camp that Shackleton proved his greatness as a leader. He willingly sacrificed his right to a warmer fur-lined sleeping bag so that one of his men might have it, and he personally served hot milk to his men in their tents every morning. Sixteen months later, in April 1916, their thinning ice flow threatened to break apart. So it forced the men to seek refuge on nearby Elephant Island, but they knew that a rescue from such a desolate island was unlikely, so Shackleton and five others left their 23 friends on Elephant Island to set out on an 800-mile journey across the open Antarctic Sea in a 22-and-a-half-foot lifeboat to find help and hopefully return to rescue those who were left behind. Finally, four months later, on August 30th, after an arduous 105-day trip and three earlier attempts that had failed, Shackleton finally returned to rescue his stranded crew and became their hero for life, obviously. But perhaps the real hero of the story is one of the men who's left behind named Frank Wilde. Frank was second in command to the boss. Frank Wilde maintained the routine that the boss had established for his men. He assigned daily duties, served meals, held sing-alongs, planned athletic competitions. He generally kept up morale. 
Because the camp was in constant danger of being buried in snow and would become completely invisible from the sea so that a rescue party might look for it in vain, Frank Wilde kept the men busy shoveling snowdrifts. <laughs> now, the firing of a gun was the prearranged signal that the rescue ship was near to the island. But Frank Wilde reported many times when the glaciers were calving and chunks fell off with the report like a gun, we thought it was the real thing. And after a time, we got to distrust those signals. But he never lost hope in the return of the boss. Confidently, Wilde kept the last tin of kerosene and a little supply of dry combustibles ready to ignite instantly for a use as a locator signal when the day of wonders would arrive, when that boat would come into sight and they would be rescued. Barely four days of rations remained in the camp when Shackleton finally arrived on that icebreaker from the country of Chile. He personally made several trips through the icy waters in a small lifeboat in order to ferry his crew to safety. Amazingly, all the men made it to safety in less than an hour. Shackleton later learned from the men how they were prepared to break camp so quickly. Shackleton writes, from two weeks on after I had left to get help, Frank Wilde would roll up his sleeping bag each day and tell the men, get your things ready, boys. The boss may come today. And sure enough, one day, the mist opened and revealed the ship for which they had been waiting and longing and hoping for for over four months. Jeremiah concludes the story with these words. He says, Shackleton's stranded crew desperately hoped that their leader would come back to them, and they longed for his return. But as diligent and as dedicated as Shackleton was, they could not be certain he would return. He was, after all, a mere man battling elements he could not control, so they knew he might not make it back. Unlike that desperate crew, we have a certain promise that the Lord will return. Ours is not a mere longing or a desperate hope, as theirs was, for our Lord is the creator and master of all, and his promise is as sure as his very existence. I want you to remember what Jesus said in John 14. Here's what he said. I just want you, within the context of this amazing story, listen. He says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And one of his crew said, Lord, we do not know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And the boss said, I am the way the truth, and the life. Nobody gets off this island but through me. Our king, our champion, our captain, he's coming back for us. He's gonna rescue us and he's gonna take us to his house. So let me ask you something. Are you ready? Are you rolling up your sleeping bag every morning and saying, this is the day. This could be the day that the boss is coming back to take us home. Are you praying for strength to endure and to stand? Are we practicing the things that he showed us? Doing the task that he assigned us? Until the day that the mist parts and he comes to rescue us all. Who else needs to be rescued? Who else needs to be ready and prepared and have the hope that our captain's coming back? Watch yourselves. Stay alert. 
Pray for strength. Hang in there. Endure. And no matter what comes, stand. Let's pray. Mm, Lord, this life is short. And we have just a little while left. And I pray that we would be alert and sober-minded. That we would not fall into some spiritual position of relaxation and apathy. That we would practice what you told us. That we would perform the duties you set before us. That we'd be making disciples. That we would be teaching the truth. That we would stand. That we would be ready in and out of season. That we would... Provide a home for the orphan and bread for the hungry. That we would stand in the way of injustice and fight the good fight and finish the race. With sure certainty that our captain's coming back for us. Any moment. And I pray that we will live that way. That we will be your witnesses, your disciples and your crew. Because you are the great captain of our soul. And you are coming back. Lord, we pray this prayer and we move forward with strength, your strength. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our King. Amen.